Hello everybody and welcome to Spill Your Beans. Today we're going to be talking about the Back to the Future trilogy. I am joined by Joel Johnson. Hello. Nice to Hello. see you, mate. How are you? You're big. I'm good. You're sort of big in the Doctor Who community on Twitter with a uh, uh, a Twitter yes. account there. You talk about Doctor Who quite a lot, but yeah, you're also yeah. you've got you've got passions in filmmaking as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm a second year film production student at university at the moment. I'm an aspiring mm. writer and director who has just had the chance to release uh, their first short film, I'd say, like properly, like fully written and directed by them, which I'm actually quite proud of. It's up on YouTube at the moment. I did a lot of like sharing it around at the time. But yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm really, uh, that's mainly what I'm quite passionate about in the field, writing and directing. So um, yeah. yeah. Professional Doctor Who fan on Twitter, but aspiring filmmaker. <laughs> so exactly. Um, so when, because obviously again, if uh, people are new to this sort of format for the podcast, um, when guests sort of apply to be on this, I sort of ask people to sort of note a few films they'd be happy to talk about. And you put down the Back to the Future trilogy. And oh, absolutely. It didn't, yeah. it didn't come as any sort of surprise because I know you've talked about Back to the Future on Twitter before as well, and there's sort of that inkling. And even yeah. today, you're wearing um, yeah. <laughs> the outfit. <laughs> from people Back who are to the just Future. listening to this won't know, but I've actually come. <laughs> Completely prepared, right? Yeah. I've come in my because I happen to own a, a cosplay for for Marty McFly in the, in the mm. first film. It's kind of like the white checkered shirt and the suspenders um, that he has. Um, basically, just the the base costume without the uh, life preserver and the, uh, the denim jacket. And I just got it a while ago because I I thought to myself, I might as well give cosplay a go. So I just yeah, thought, why yeah. Not? Yeah, go and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go for my icon, right? I'll go, I'll go for my fly. Yeah. So, yeah, I've come dressed in that today, so, yeah. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> um, well, so today we're going to be talking about the Back to the Future trilogy. Obviously, you noted that down. Um, what does this sort of trilogy mean to you, generally? It was definitely the gateway in terms of me deciding what I want to do in life is filmmaking. It was, it was the first kind of series that I ever watched as a kid and thought to myself this is what I want to do for the the rest of my life I want to make mm. stuff like this I want to tell stories like this that make people laugh that make people cry that make people like jump out of the seat and cheer for certain moments you know like great moments that get the audience yeah. sort of like riled up you know and appreciate the frankly the art that, you, that you've put together you know it's, it was definitely the the first stepping stone which led me on to so many others you know and that's why i'm always going to be very kind of appreciative of this series so well that's a that's a really lovely way of putting it bloody hell that's a great answer um, <laughs> thank you mate so we're going to start off obviously by talking about the very first film um in the trilogy of back to the future films and that is back to the future Hmm. So, I mean, where Shocker. to start with this? We both, I, I think we both, I mean, I know you love it, but I, I say as well, I absolutely love these films. Mm -hmm. um, I have my own little preferences here and there, but Back to the Future, the original, unmistakably just, it's brilliant. It is, it absolutely is. It, I think it's just kind of, quint it's, it's, the way I describe it is, it's lightning in a bottle filmmaking. It's one of those things that kind of came together perfectly and will almost never be recaptured ever again so it's no. kind of pointless to even try like it's just everything it's big to say but everything about it is just perfect i think that's kind of like safe to say i can't think of we're going to get into this but i don't think i can think of a single element that i personally dislike and as a result it's just a perfect film fair play i mean that's yeah i I, I can't help but agree, to be honest, because it is, it's one of those films, again, that I watched when I was younger as well, and it is, 
you know, I was already a fan of like Doctor Who and stuff, and I like the sort of time travely like sci-fi mm. stuff. But to see that sort of realised um, in this sort of format, you know, um, yeah. with you know, like in the sort of era of like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and that sort mm. of style is the kind of films that I grew up with. So to see like a time travel sci-fi one. A bit like that, but not in the traditional sense of like Doctor Who, where it's like visiting locations and being like, "Oh, here's a random planet, and here's what money they use and food they eat." This is like just the same location, but, yeah. You know, and it's it's the whole thing's by accident. And the thing is with like the second and third film, as much as I do love those, and we'll get onto those obviously. I think the thing that really strikes me about this film is that the whole thing, the the whole suspense of this film is that it's accidental like he wasn't yeah. actually supposed to go back in time well, yet yeah he did ex exactly and that's what i was saying about uh lightning in the bottle filmmaking is that um obviously i agree with you and that i like the sequels but there's just something uh, about the first one that is will always just fa be mm. failed to be recaptured in any kind of remake if that eventually happens god forbid or like any of the sequels that already exist there's just mm. something about the first one which is special and it's just hard to kind of get again you know, I think also as well, it was, uh, like you said, it came out in that era, kind of like post-Star Wars, you know, it's one mm. of those films that you kind of watch as a kid. I think it was kind of the perfect era to have a story like that be made, because in terms of the way Hollywood was developing at the time, the way people were trying to, like, tell stories and delve into bigger sci-fi concepts once the technology was kind of becoming more and more developed, the creativity of it is almost palpable as you're watching it. Like the 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 mm. way they try and sort of like accomplish these kind of like big outlandish sci-fi concepts is great because creativity-wise, it's honed down to a very kind of personal family perspective, and we're going to get into that when we talk about the plot, I imagine. But that's what works. Yeah. It has heart, you know. Yeah. Like the no, sci-fi no, concepts are also are almost window dressing, you know, to to the heart of the film. If mm. that makes sense. And I, I think what differentiates it a little bit is that um, the second and third films, which I do love, and we'll talk mm. about sort of again after the first break, but the thing that differentiates them a little bit is that, again, they are very classic sci-fi things, like something happens in the past, changes the future, they need to go back and change the past. This is, this is just, this is an accidental thing. They need to fix it, but they don't have to go anywhere else. It's just, they need to fix it, and he, want, he wants to get back home. Yeah, definitely. And I love that. You don't feel that the DeLorean is this like ultra special incredible time machine because it requires so much energy fuel whatever you really he really is stuck in the 50s if he doesn't get yeah. this right and i love that yeah the delorean is, is iconic and it's it's one of those things that quite surprised oh, yeah. me that it, it it's it was kind of like one of those decisions that came very later on um a bit of trivia that I, I read at one point was that in the original screenplay for the film, the time machine was meant to be more akin to a fridge, which I found quite interesting. funny. Like, it wasn't going to be a, a car, but um, I don't know who, but someone, like, tapped either Bob Gale or Robert Zemeckis on the shoulder and said, oh, you should you should make it a car because, like, the kids will like it more and they'll want to, like, flock to it a bit more. And since then, I, it's yeah, one I of those... Yeah, I couldn't imagine that being a fridge. In, That's in, mental. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, because then the, the climax would be completely <laughs> sort of, like, flipped on its head. That whole, like... Because you can't drive a fridge to a a lightning bolt can you yeah it's like yeah it's not one of those things that works you know every I, I, like it would be very interesting to see what the original plan was but the delorean in itself has just kind of burrowed its way into like pop culture now which i find and, quite fascinating yeah. and, and yeah. rightfully so it's a it's a 
gorgeous idea, and it's mm, a definitely. beautiful design as well. They picked the sort of, it's almost like Joke of a car, which is like this sort of car of the future yeah. type thing, but it was a bit yeah. naff. And they turned it into this phenomenon because it's now like well you know i'm sort of sitting here going you know what if i if i was rich enough in the future and i got the opportunity i would buy a delorean yeah of course absolutely it looks looks great because it's because of back to the future i I was so i was so heartbroken when obviously as a kid like if you watch back to the future you want a delorean growing up but i was like shocked to find out that they were apparently like a horrible make like they weren't very good because the way the films like sell them you know it's the ultimate advertisement, almost. Oh, you know? absolutely! Yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting one. I don't know. I think with the with the DeLorean as well. I think I can't. I'm just I'm baffled at the fridge thing. You've really thrown me off there because that's so weird. I couldn't How imagine that with the fridge. Yeah, it just doesn't work. You have to start like thinking of every <laughs> other scene, like just imagining yeah. it as a fridge. Yeah, that is weird. Mm. But then again, this this film is notorious as well for how many. Um, sort of problems they had during the making of the film. Um, mm. We'll talk about the cast a little bit. Obviously, Michael yeah. J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd the, is the main two, um, Marty and Doc Brown. Uh, incredible. Absolutely, you know, I, yeah. I couldn't see anyone else playing them. But it was almost different. Was it Eric Stoltz originally supposed to be playing Yeah, Marty? yeah. I, th- I was blanking on the name, but now that you've said that, I'm pretty sure that was mm. that was the guy, yeah, that was going to, to be Marty. And they filmed and a lot of scenes, including, yeah, like... They- the car going back in time for the first time as well as the bit in the diner with George at the start because mm. those uh, clips or, or pictures uh, do exist. Like, you can Google them mm. and find them. And it's so surreal because everyone else looks exactly the same. It's almost like someone's photoshopped, like, a random guy into these scenes yeah. now, you know? The thing that was most interesting for me is that it's not just the actor because usually what it is is that oh they get an actor in they had to recast halfway through yeah. so they just they just get the other actor in they redo these scenes mm-hmm. but like the whole costume changed hmm yeah like it looks totally different absolutely it's just, sure, like, like I said if you can see the images of Eric Stoltz he's like almost wearing like he's in black, black isn't he like, yeah, yeah yeah he's like a it's, sort of punk well that that <laughs> goes once again that like obviously the, the costume would even change when they bring in Michael J Fox it's all these little things that you just ha- are left to assume were made these decisions were made last minute but somehow it, like I said it's lightning in a bottle they are now iconic right the, the, mm. the, the time machine being changed to a car and being made into a DeLorean just for the sake of wanting to mm. have a cool time machine Doc Brown says oh if you're going to invent a time machine, do it in style. Why not? Mm. All these, and I like Marty's costume, all these, I'm wearing it for God's sake. Like literally yeah, all these things yeah. are completely iconic, but they were last minute. Like they weren't there from the beginning and somehow th- they just make it, you know? And yeah. I find that inherently fascinating, you know? Yeah, no, I think I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's one of those films as well. That, I mean, it's, it's, Baffling as well when you think about all that stuff. It, it's amazing that it even got made. Mm, absolutely. I'm so glad it did. But yeah, you know, it, of it's, course. It's we wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think it's a uh, in terms. Yeah, but I think we'll 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 sort of push over to the again back to the characters. I think both of those main roles are played to perfection. Not just Marty, but also Doc Brown as well. Christopher Lloyd is absolutely fantastic in this. He's I always brilliant. forget how brilliant he is. Because, mm. you know, when you sort of remember the, the bits and bats, um, you sort of remember the sort of key lines and the quirky moments. But actually, like, it's a really good performance. Literally, he gets down the character so perfectly, all these little, like, idiosyncrasies. And, like, his, Christopher Lloyd plays Doc Brown. His comedic timing is oh, yeah. absolutely superb in, yeah. like, every scene he's in. 
Like he, he's he's hamming it up in a way that's kind of believable as a kind of like off kilter somewhat I don't want to say crazy scientist but he is kind yeah. of a bit like he's he's outlandish he's ex- eccentric is the word I'd, I'd say to mm. use him and he nails that performance perfectly so yeah no I, t- I, t- I totally agree I think the pair of them are brilliant like, it's, it's so weird again thinking that it could have been um, Eric Stoltz playing Marty even looking back because these two characters and their looks and their styles and you know their actors are so iconic and so the chemistry is so good franchise like, yeah exactly it must have been really weird for Christopher Lloyd to like do the performance alongside Eric Stoltz and then like refilm it with Michael J. Fox and still have that amazing chemistry. Yeah, That's, yeah. Well, that must have been bloody difficult, and you know, I I I respect it. I'm sure he thinks like nowadays it was it was a change for the better, of course, because of like like oh, I said, yeah. the fact that it's it's become so iconic. And like mm. everyone, everyone mm. knows of like the pairing of Doc and Marty. It, like, like it, like I said, it's another one of those things. It's ingrained its way to, in, into pop culture, even to the point where, um, <laughs> bit off topic, but one of the one of the most successful cartoons ever made nowadays is based off of a Doc and Marty parody. You know, of course, in, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally forgot about that. You know, <laughs> I, I genuinely I forget all the time that that's actually supposed to be like a piss take. But it, literally, yeah, yeah, like the only reason that cartoon, like if you don't know what we're referring to, we're referring to Rick and Morty. But Rick the only Morty, reason yeah. it exists. <laughs> Is because of Doc and Marty from this film, you know. Like without yeah. this film, that wouldn't exist. And that's... And they're called they're called Rick and Morty. I they're mean, called like, Rick and Morty. It's, it's so yeah, like you know, exactly. you're so on the nose. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's even what uh, we'll get off topic. I'll try and come back around. But that's even what it was. They were originally just like cartoon parody shorts called The Adventures of Doc and Marty, but like spelled mm. wrong. So mm. yeah, like. It's just the, the pairing is incredible. It's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so it's, good. It's, it is brilliant. In terms of the plot, I know we touched upon that before a little bit. Um, th- th- this is probably the most unique of the three in terms of again the the way they do it um, mm-hmm. with the family and all that sort of thing. I mean, thoughts on that because I think that the way they set up the family and, and the sort of I, I think it's it's interesting because with Back to the Future, it's one of those films that has a plot that is so tightly packed. Like so, mm. so like well put together because there's so many films which just have it, it's it can a, it's be simple, a perfect it's, script. You know, point Genuinely. A to point B, yeah. But with Back to the Future, there's always all those little things. I love it as well. I mean, it's just jumping ahead a little bit, but the fact that like the parents in sort of modern day, let's say modern day, you know, the eighties, yeah, they change drastically from the beginning of the film to the end of the film based on the slight alterations that Marty makes in his own time zone, mm. and I think that is fascinating. Yeah, obviously the 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 family element is what makes the first film. It's it's sorely lacking from like the sequels, but it is definitely the heart of uh, of the piece is what I'd say. And like mm. it's so expertly like crafted from the from the performances to the writing. Bob Gale, the the screenwriter, I think, even said that the idea initially came about when he was flicking through his dad's old yearbook and saw a picture of him where he looked exactly like him, like like mm. he does now, and that that's where the idea of like <clears throat> trying to learn who your parents were based on what kind of people they were when your age came about, which I think mm. is just a beautiful idea, like yeah. trying to learn who your parents are by seeing them in your shoes. You know, I think that's just an incredibly earnest and heartfelt idea, which is just like accomplished to perfection. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I couldn't have put it better myself, to be honest. I think there's obviously the, the focus on it, but I think as well, 
again, touching on what I said before a little bit, I think what's fascinating about this film is that, it, again, with it being so tightly wrapped up, you don't get mm. that with many films. The sort of things that they didn't need to do, details they didn't need to include. I mean, every mm. one of their mums has pointed out the whole um, Twin Pines Mall thing. Yeah, yeah, the matter. Like where, the way that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm everyone quite, knows this bloody thing. Yeah, he I'm, knocks over I'm the tree. I'm quite open of the fact that I am a Back to the Future fan of people. So the amount of people that have sent me this expecting me to not already know. Yeah, that's like, my, that, yeah, I never like, understand that. Yeah. I am a self professed fan of this. Why do you think I would have not caught this already? It, it's, you know? it's like one of those things I see on TikTok where it's like hidden details you didn't spot in Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, part yeah, that, that five. Annoying. And it's yeah. like some guy looking at his camera and then it's like did you know that he knocks down the tree yeah i know he knocks down the bloody tree literally it's, it's the most yeah but uh, my point back to my point and uh, ran against tiktok <laughs> there for a second but but to my original point of the amount of little details like that in this film um really just make it so much better and i always appreciate when films are able to do that because it's so easy just to not do that it's so easy just to make it a simple plot marty fixes everything he goes back to the future yeah but yeah. um, <laughs> and he uh, and, and his parents and his parents have changed. They didn't need to be changed. They didn't need to be different. No, you know, no. Didn't I'm, I'm probably too, gonna like, have, I just, later on. I'm yeah. probably going to have a conversation about the time travel logic because, like, why on earth yeah. not? But like, it is. It, yeah. it doesn't. It's all. It's a, a, It's heart. Back to the Future is a story. It might sound crazy, but Back to the Future is a story about family. You know, mm. and like people being able to become their best selves because of their relation their their familial relationships which i just find quite sweet and beautiful mm. which is not mm. something i could say about a lot of films it's just something i could say about a lot of um my own uh, favorite films because i just i enjoy that kind of theme in filmmaking personally mm. and it would be something that i i think i would try to capture in in my own work but yeah it's it's quite commendable in that sense that it tries to tackle like very kind of outlandish these very outlandish sci-fi concepts but like bringing it back down to a very kind of personal and heartfelt level which mm. i think is just quite nice like that's that's like in simplest terms it's just yeah. quite nice you know i think like, it simplifies it as well i think stuff like mm. uh, and again i know we're both fans of doctor who so i will be referring to it during the uh, course of this podcast only because we're both fans of it, but also it's a time travel thing, so it, it makes sense to compare it to, especially with it being um, significantly older than Back to the Future is um, mm. as well. So there's obviously... I, I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have been aware of something like Doctor Who or other time travel properties but when making this film. So it's an interesting comparison. Um, yeah. I think there's so much to be said. I, I, it's, I don't know. It's, 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 an, it's an interesting one. I think looking at the the key sort of differences and, and styles and stuff, I think is... Yeah. I'd say what we were just talking about how a lot of people, like, because it's a big... It's, yeah. it's perceived in pop culture as a big, uh, like, one of those time like iconic time travel films. A lot of people like to mm. kind of point out the little hidden details, like like the Lone Pines thing, because that is mm. a consequence of, of the time travel logic. But a, a, mm. what a lot of people don't seem to really talk about is the, the, the details in the script, which work on, like, a character level. Like, between yeah. the relationship between um, George and Marty, like, the fact that they both, at, at their heart, they both share a fear of rejection. Like, which which is quite, obviously, in the case of yeah. George, it's it's Lorraine, and it's also the fact that he thinks his stories are never going to be appreciated by people, which is realised in the end when the future has changed mm. and he gets a published book. But 
Obviously, in Marty's case, it's a thing of he, he doesn't think his music is ever going to be picked up. He wants to be in the band, he wants to be in the show, but he's he's slagged off by by Huey Lewis for saying that his, his music's <laughs> too loud, you know, which yeah. is a great cameo. And I just, I think that's quite a, a lovely detail for them to have that, a, like, connection at mm. the same age and for them to both go on and become better and their best selves in this new future because of the mm. fact they've now been able to understand each other like that, you know? Whether yeah. one one of them doesn't know it, George, obviously, because he doesn't know mm. that this is his kid, but his life is changed for the better because of a new understanding with his son who he doesn't know it's his son yet, you mm. know? Yeah. And just, uh, from a character standpoint, that's, that's quite great, <laughs> really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as well, again, like... Looking at that sort of previous comparison with Doctor Who, I think what Back to the Future does expertly is it sort of it makes it simpler to understand for a greater audience. I feel like anyone can watch Back to the Future and understand it, whereas you, mm. you, I don't think you get that with Doctor Who, for example. With the stuff that happens in time travel, the rules of time travel, and the way that sort of plays into it is so interesting but so simplified. But not simplified yeah. in a sort of dumbing down way, kind of where it's just like just spoon feeding mm. it to you. It's complex, but you understand it because of its family yeah. nature and because of what that implies. Yeah, because it's, it's it's a human story. Something like uh, the way it differs to something like Doctor Who is a Doctor Who is very um, don't crucify me for saying this if you're listening. Uh, law mm-hmm. heavy, I'd say. Yeah, like you well, need no, to, it is. You need to true, kind of have yeah. an understand. You need to kind of have an understanding of the universe you're entering in when you watch Doctor Who, like who this character is, where he comes from, how does this police box work? You know, what on earth are time lords? Yeah. Who are these aliens? All this sort of stuff you need to kind of know going in um, to a certain extent. Obviously, there are like certain entry points in the franchise, but with something like Back to the Future, it is a human story with real people who just happen to have a time traveling car you know mm, like mm. that's that's what makes it so accessible at the end of the yeah, day yeah it's real people it's not like any of them are alien there's no there's, there's no like yeah i mean doc it's a brown sci-fi. isn't doc brown isn't an alien you yeah know? Like, exactly yeah it is like it is a sci-fi but it's not a it's not got those sci-fi tropes of like an alien disguise or something or like the car came from like the heavens or something it's just a mad mm. scientist who happens to be pretty bloody good at what he does I mean, he is. I mean, that's that's fair enough. Absolutely, it's like, that's one of those things because he is sort of portrayed as the sort of mad scientist character. But it is insane how much he because he invents a time machine. Like he, he actually makes a working, efficient time machine in style. We need to yeah, add, yeah, yeah, like, which is insane. Good for and him. Yeah, really. like he, I know he's like all this sort of thing with the. I mean, yeah, and he's plutonium, or and he's like a ridiculous amount of power. But then he goes to the future where let me point out they still don't have time machines, and he manages to just find this thing that you can make work, and that's just insane. Yeah, absolute genius, <laughs> really. It is, it is brilliant, but yeah, no, I, I think with a lot of the plot and, and with a lot of this country, it is just a brilliant film. I don't know what else we can really say about it because we've kind of covered it. It's a I will, brilliant I film. would want to, in terms of the first one alone, I would mm. want to highlight one particular element, which I feel, uh, at least for me, kind of makes it. And the reason I want to highlight it here mm. is because it's not present in any of the sequels. And that okay. is uh, a singular performance, Crispin Glover as George McFly, who is not present mm. in either of the sequels, I, I feel is incredible. Obviously, that's the thing of all of the the actors who are in both like the 50s and the 80s. Uh, mm. They are like 20 odd year olds who are made up to look in like they're putting old ma- old age makeup and made to look like they're 30 mm. years older. Uh, mm. Which one I just think is a, is a brilliant um, like 
is mechanic the right word for it like uh idea i'd say to sort of like have it be the same actors just like putting old age makeup um, yeah because it sells like have it having it be the real person and the real face sells moments like the cafe bit where marty realizes it's his dad for the first time because that one shot where he's coming by his dad and he's lingering and he's just got his eyes fixated on him works so much well from an audience standpoint because it is it's the same face right we can we can mm. come to like get that same information before Biff comes in and calls him by his name. You know, we know it's him. Yeah. But what I was going to say about Crispin Glover in particular is he absolutely sells in his performance being the kind of like weaselly, sad, like middle-aged 47-year-old man 100%. as 100%. well as he does like the his like 17-year-old 1955 counterpart. He's so good. And it's it's quite sad that uh, he's not in any, any of the sequels because like quite well known his his role would have been more than it was in the sequels if he if he had come back but we'll talk about that uh, when we get to the sequels but i just wanted to highlight crispin glover's performance is definitely a highlight for me in particular yeah i mean i i i have to agree he's he is brilliant in this film hmm. and i think he uh, yeah I, 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 you've encapsulated that brilliantly because there's not really too much else i can add to that he's absolutely like, excellent in every part of this film that he plays yeah, um, all, all his idiosyncrasies, all of his little mannerisms, you know, they sort of yeah, like sell yeah. the kind of like hunch, especially at the start, the kind of like hunched over, like sort of tired, like cowardly sort of like figure, which sort of like yeah. bleed over in when you see the younger self, because like the younger self and the original older self are meant to be kind of like parallels to each other. Like this man has mm. not really grown up. He's never gained a backbone. And then in the end, obviously you don't see a lot of him. He, he does sell quite well. The more, the more confident George as well. I just think it's quite a, a versatile and nuanced performance that definitely deserves like a spotlight mm. on it because people oh, always talk about, people always talk about Doc and Marty as like the heart or like the main thing of the film to look at in terms of characters or performances but but just George McFly is, is yeah he's brilliant incredible yeah it's just an incredible character and an incredible performance it's it's my it's my favorite in the film personally yeah so. I, I that's fair enough I think right I can't really I don't know if I've got a favorite of the film to be honest but I think he's definitely it's I mean, difficult he's, I'll, like it's yeah difficult to pick one. I mean he probably would be but I, I can't I don't want to put money on that uh, you know I, I think <laughs> Especially, I think it's the opening scene as well, where he's sat and watching the TV, and that where he just yeah. sort of laugh. It's just he's so he, he plays it so well because it's just like I don't know. You, it, you just completely buy that this is a forty-seven-year-old <laughs> like man who's just kind of like had a bit yeah. of a like some some rough cards dealt to him in life, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Like yeah. he's got no backbone, like all that. You can he completely sells it. You know? Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's. You, it's you more shocking when you realise he's what he's what like twenty twenty one years old when they filmed that. Like really, it's, yeah, it's 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 incredible, honestly. Bloody hell, twenty one, yeah, yeah twenty one, like <laughs> literally. <clears throat> yeah, I that's incredible. Um, we've also got obviously Lee Thompson as well who played Lorraine. Oh yeah, definitely. She, she's brilliant. brilliant. I think obviously Chris McGlynn's you know slightly on a higher tier than that because of the, the nuances in his performance in all different sort of age groups of that it, that's incredible but I think mm. again just to quickly mention because I know the parents aren't in the other films as much so it's probably worth mentioning them now yeah um, Lee Thompson as Lorraine is brilliant as well Lee it's, Thompson absolutely she, is she, great, she, yeah. she manages to really cleverly in a way sort of it, it, it's the showcasing of that sort of awkward tension because obviously mm. she doesn't know that Marty's like her son 
Yes. But the audience know that, but it's, it's it's the sort of the performance of the dialogue and the sort of infatuation for Marty. It's like, oh god, it like yeah. it takes some actual talent to make that believable and really invoke a sort of cringeworthy reaction out mm. of the audience. The performances of like the parents, for example, really shine because of the fact that they go out of their way to set up the contrast between like who they are mm-hmm. in nineteen eighty five exactly. at the beginning and who they are in exactly, nineteen fifty five. Yeah. Like Leah Thompson sells the kind of like jaded tired sort of like her brother's in prison type thing she's not happy in her marriage anymore she's kind of reminiscing on the past she sells Mm. like she sells that really well and then when we get to 1955 and we learn who she was um Mm. like in contrast to what she told her kids she's more kind of wide-eyed more kind of um i don't want to say wild isn't the word but more energetic i guess you know more kind of more full of life you know but more mm, a- mm. excited at the same time but but also a bit nervous like when she's talking to marty in her room and stuff like that like she's she doesn't really have um, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. i apologize mate but like yeah you, yeah, you yeah. very much get a like a difference in who she is at these two points of her life which basically shine a light on how strong the performance is that she can play the same person and you buy it as the same person yeah but just no, exactly. at two different points in her life you know no absolutely and i think that's again evident across most of those performances i'm not going to mention biff quite yet because he's mm. more synonymous again in the second and third film, specifically the second actually. He shines um, a lot more in the <clears throat> in the second. What I was going to say is that uh, the actor who plays Biff, I think, is the least convincing in the first one of playing like an older version of himself. Uh, in Do you contrast think? to like Leah, in, yeah, I, I believe so. In contrast to Leah Thompson and um, Crispin Glover like his performance because he's not in a lot of it his performance at the start where he's playing like the kind of like uh 47 year old kind of like bully version of biff you know mm. like is like the the higher mm. up to to george it just it more feels like how he is in the 50s a lot there's less of a, a contrast there which yeah makes the performance yeah i suppose feel yeah, that's, a, a little that's, less strong that's true to be fair I, I i i see that i think for me as well just a sort of slight side note um the prosthetic work is really mm. good for that as well i think yeah I, what i will say is actually especially for the time as well um the makeup and and stuff for the the older versions of especially mm. of biff um it, i mean biff in all these films it is stunning how much like yeah he blends into all of like the sort of makeup work um but also um george and lorraine as well they they also have that sort of same effect with the sort of older makeup and the younger i think they whoever was in charge of that department did a bloody brilliant job because mm. it, it looks believable and it's really hard because you sort of yeah you can border on like nutty professor level where it's sort of very clearly everyone's eddie murphy but it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's not you know it's not like too believable <laughs> but i with with this it's sort of it does work and thank god it mm. works otherwise it would have looked a little bit like a farce and you like should you might then have the audience thinking, well, why didn't you just cast someone else? You know it's old age makeup because of the, of the fact that, like, the technology to do it nowadays where they sort of, like, age, like age or de-age people with CGI just didn't exist at the time, so it has to be old age makeup. But in its execution, I think it's just subtle enough with, mm. so it's believable, you know? Yeah. No, I, 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 I think that's, that's bang on. Um, before we sort of shift on to our first break... There's one mm. one sort of final thing, um, unless there's anything else you want to bring up about Back to the Future. There's only one final thing that I want to sort of bring up here, because um, I feel is, is most synonymous with this film specifically for me um, is the music, specifically yes. that um, of uh, Huey Lewis and the News. 
right. the two tracks as well. With I mean, that, that, that's obviously the music's incredible across all the films, um, mm. but specifically the 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 tracks used there because it is a weird one because Huey Lewis sort of pops up in a cameo and they use obviously mm. two. They've got the specially written song at the end, "Back in Time," and "The Power of Love," of course, plays in the opening act, which I think I, I can't hear that song without thinking of this film. It's so like so synonymous. It's just it is just it point. is just this film, yeah. Yeah, um, both of them are like you can't hear both of these songs without. Obviously, like Huey Lewis has like has been used. Music has been used in other films before, most notably American Psycho. Of course, but like yes. something about uh, these two songs, "Back in Time," which obviously was written for the film, and "The Power of Love," just are <clears throat> they're, they're just kind of married to this film. Like in, yeah. terms, in terms of the zeitgeist around it, like you can't hear these things without. Like there's almost like me, me especially. There's almost kind of a habit now, right before "Power of Love" starts playing, to go. Doc, I'm late for school before like it kicks in. Yeah, like, yeah, it just, yeah, like, yeah. Literally, yeah. like it leads into it so perfectly. <laughs> like, no, you're, you're, yeah. It, I just, it's a strange choice, but a one that paid off really well. Getting like, um, you know, getting it's, like, it's obviously this kind of random sort of musical artist in to do, obviously take the song, have a cameo, and then write and record a new song for the end as well. Mm. Um, it's kind of levels almost like Ghostbusters went to with like having like their own sort of original theme song, which ended up being like a pop hit in itself. Hmm. Um, if I was that that what you just said there works so perfectly. If I was to wrap up my my thoughts on this this first film, first first film first film in any way is that it's a strange choice, but it works so perfectly. You could yeah. say that about almost every <laughs> element. You know, yeah, it, no, it I, sums I totally it up agree. so great. So. I think that's a great place to end that uh, sort of first little segment. Uh, we're going to go on a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Joel about his choice for the record spinner and the second Back to the Future film. See you in a minute. Hello and welcome back to the second part of our Back to the Future trilogy review on Spill Your Beans. We're going to jump straight into our first segment, um, which is the record spinner. If you're not familiar with the uh, little format we have on this podcast, uh, we basically ask guests to pick out a film soundtrack or an individual track from a film that they absolutely adore and will put above any other. Um, we've had some great picks so far, and I'm interested to see what you're going to pick today, Joel. There's so many options there I, so I, many. Say, I, I need i need to say uh, to like give you an idea of like who i am as a person as like an aspiring writer i kind of I, I love to listen to to score music uh, or like, classical score music in particular when i'm trying <clears> to like write yeah. down or, or brainstorm any ideas so i'm gonna try and offer some up that i i that i like to listen to when i'm doing um as such at the moment so Honorable mention-wise, I'd say the soundtrack to the French new... I'm not sure what year, but the French new wave Jean-Luc Godard film Breathless, also known as A, a Boot de Souf, um, by Marshall Salal, is quite good. Uh, a mm. lot of the tracks you could give the criticism of being quite samey, but it's that kind of rich 60s improvisational jazz tracks, which I think work quite well for the feel of that film, so I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, otherwise, I know this... Uh, to give a more recent example, I'd say... Joker, 
the Oscar-winning yeah. soundtrack Joker, I think, is quite good. It's one of those... The way I would describe it is the, it's the first soundtrack that feels like it's... That I've lis- ever listened to that feels like it's genuinely in pain, which I think That's a really is, good way of putting perfect. it, yeah. Literally, the, yeah. the use of the sort of woodwind and the, the violins and the, the, those kind of instruments just work excellently to get that feeling across mm. and I that's why I just think it's beautiful to listen to every single time uh, another one I'd say the a big more uh, well-known composer Danny Elfman I'd recommend uh, most any of his soundtracks but one in yeah, particular I'd say is the yeah he's just so prolific at this point but one in particular I'd say is the soundtrack to Big Fish uh, mm. his like film with uh, Tim done by Timber and starring like Ewan McGregor 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 apologies um <laughs> I think it's just also really kind of sweet and nice to listen to, and it's also incredibly calming uh, mm. in a lot of ways. It just has some really lovely motifs and themes in there. But those were three honourable mentions that I wanted to give. The one that I'm really going to try and shine a light on is from a film that I also think hasn't really gained a lot of attention over the many decades since it's been released, and that is the the soundtrack to The Conversation the Francis Ford Coppola film that came out in 1974, I want to say it's either 72 or 74, released in between the first two Godfather films, uh, composed by David Shire. I, I believe that's that's how you say his name. Um, I just think it's quite beautiful. Uh, a lot of the tracks are, j- are very kind of understated. They're just done on uh, piano, mostly. They're very kind of quiet or sticking to only like one or two instruments and the whole kind of feel that every single track it is almost every single track I should say that is trying to get across is just this constant feeling of loneliness and sadness and desperation which is mm. perfect when it's coming from a very kind of personal character study that focuses on like this one kind of eccentric individual I don't want to give I don't want to say too much about the plot because that's not what we're here to talk about today I would recommend the film I think it's a, a an ex a perfect character study and it's personally my favorite Francis Ford Coppola film but the soundtrack is just superb it's just made up of a lot of lovely uh piano music and uh, a lot of kind of brass instruments as well because that's kind of a detail of the character that you know if you if you watch the film uh one track in particular i recommend from the soundtrack is called whatever was arranged and the name of that that soundtrack would make a lot more sense with the context of the narrative but it's one of those kind of lovely pieces that just feels so sad in a way and desperate like it's almost reaching out and the way the reason I recommend that is because it works as well on its own but the way it incorporates the main motifs of the main themes of the film make it stand out a lot more it's almost like a suite you know like when you listen to a a suite of like uh of like a film it has like it's like a medley of all all the all the best parts of the music it works somewhat like that but yeah man it's just it's just one of those that kind of hits you when you're watching it the, the film for the first time everyone i've shown it to like a few minutes in goes wow this soundtrack is incredible it's just so like mm. it's so attention grabbing in its simplicity i feel like yeah like yeah the, the conversation by david shire you know that that soundtrack highly recommend it well that's a great choice I, I can't say i'm familiar with it to be honest, no. But, that, that's the thing. Not a lot of people are. The soundtrack and the film itself, I highly recommend both. You know? But I'm, I'm definitely going to go and check that out. Like, that that mm. thing that gets shared around, I'm going to add it to the list. Um, Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great choice. I mean, again, like the passion that's clearly coming out of it 
I mean, it, it must be good. Thank you, man. So I'm looking forward to going yeah. and having a listen to it's it later. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, literally. Well, that is a great choice. That's a lovely uh, note to pass into um, our next little topic of conversation, which is, of course, the sequel to Back to the Future. Back to the mm. Future 2. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Back to the Future 2. Thoughts on this film, um, specifically in comparison to the first? For a time in my life... It was my favorite in the series. I'm gonna I'm gonna be completely honest Ooh. about that because okay. as a, a keep in mind as a kid, right? You're kind of almost drawn to the the cool future setting, you know, all the cool gadgets and the hoverboards, you know, and the flying car and all this uh-huh. sort of stuff. And like, I think like ever since I was young, particularly in time travel stories, I've always been fascinated by the concept of crossing over into to different realities or timelines and seeing different versions of characters and, mm. and people you're already familiar with. So that's why as well, I think I kind of gravitated to the second one quite young. And I feel like uh, as an adult, that is still an element of it that that shines, you know, the creativity that comes from how can we take the events of the first one and play them just off like just mm. off from the first one that makes them like m- m- that gives them like a new dimension which i think is mm. quite and quite watchable you know and quite quite interesting to watch really mm. i i'm that's interesting uh specifically mm. in, in the sense of saying that it used to be your favorite of the franchise because mm. it is still my favorite of the franchise wow okay um <laughs> possibly for all the reasons you listed but i I, I don't think that like any of the other ones are bad. I think they're all on par, I think. But I, I do think this one is slightly above in my sort of ranking when I think about it. Mm. And I watched them back to back uh, a while back. And yeah, it's still... <clears throat> as much as I love the first one. And the thing is, the first one works as its own film. And that's one thing that yes. can never be said about the other ones. Is the second one does not work as, as its own film. The third one, no. absolutely not. So... As a standalone film, Back to the Future is definitely the best. If we're looking in the franchise itself, in the same way that, you know, comparing stuff like the Star Wars franchise or something like that, for me, it's the second one. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know what it is about this film. I, I think maybe I've got some sort of fascination with this sort of view into the future, what technology could be like. I think it's fascinating that it's a film that envisions the future 2015. Which is mental, yeah, yeah. And, and I love, again, that we grew up sort of around that time. You know, I was 14 when this film was based, you know. That's, mm. That is well, yeah, weird same. to me, yeah. and to look back and, and go, bloody hell, that's... That, I mean, it's nothing like that, but I think it's fascinating to look into what people in the 80s might have imagined the future would be like. And, mm. I, and I It's do, kind of like I a, it's kind of like a reverse time <clears throat> capsule instead instead of yeah. in the in, in the opposite way of the first one is the first one tries to like it's a time capsule in the sense you get like a complete idea of what a a film and the setting was like in the 80s as well as trying to recapture mm. what things were like 30 years earlier but this is a time capsule in the sense that you get a clear picture of like what that like a creative mind fought up what the year 2015 was going to be at mm. like that time 30 years before that yeah you know, which i think is quite fascinating it's always quite cool obviously <laughs> like there's the downside of it's it's dated in retrospect but it's always quite just just yeah, watchable I, and interesting to I, see I, what I, people thought it was going to be you but know? i i think of that is in a sort of different way not in the sense of and, and yeah it is interesting and it has 
perhaps aged poorly in, in that, but it was always going to. I love the mm. fact that you can really get a sight into the filmmaker's ideas of what the future would be like in terms of everything, mm. in terms of going into a, a cafe, sitting down and having a drink, in terms of like just navigating a path, in terms of cars, in terms of cinema, mm. in terms of like automobiles. Jaws sequels. Yeah, like yeah. It's, <laughs> fascinating, it's fascinating to see... Um, their view of what the future would be like. Yeah. And I think, and to be honest, yeah. no fun comes from trying to accurately predict where we're going to be like 30 years down the line. Of course. Because it's, yeah, exactly. If you're going to try and like uh, fictionalize this version of the future, which, like, to be honest, you know is never going to be quite right, mm. why not go all out with it? Why not have fun with it? Why not yeah. depict and give people something that, that allows their imagination to, to sort of like blossom? You know, in in a sense, you, you, because yeah. like to be honest, you, kids kids will have seen this when it came out, and somewhere out there, they would have had an idea, or it would have given them a spark, and w- that would have led on to something great. There's probably so many people out there that were inspired by Back to the Future Two and wanted to make something in its future 100%. a reality. Yeah, yeah I mean, but I think that's a huge part of it, and I think I've got a fascination with that a little bit. But I've also got, I think it's fascinating as well talking about the sort of future stuff is. How many things they did actually get right? Yeah, we might not have flying cars, we might not have like hoverboards or whatever, but a lot of this technology is like available. I mean, like the mm. the conference call thing, the video call. I mean, that's mm. so. I mean, we're doing that now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like that's insane to me. And there's, I, I can't try to think of some of the other elements as well. I mean. Like the dependence, like it's it's quite small, but the kind of dependence in Hollywood on kind of like sequels and remakes is yes. kind of like commented very, on. Yeah, very, very interesting. Fact that obviously, yeah. obviously not to that extent of Jaws nineteen, but you know, it's like but it's yeah. there to a certain extent today. You know, but, yeah, like we are kind of still making the same films over and I, over I, and over I, again. I think you know? I think if if they had the rights, they probably would have made a joke about Star Wars. Or like, Probably, yeah. Which which would have been, I mean, Jaws is one of those things that didn't really last all that long in terms of ridiculous sequels and you know all that sort of thing but i think it's yeah thankfully but i think it's um (laughs) i think it's it is an interesting view into the future and i think it's it's fascinating to see that but what i think i love most about this film is that it is just a time travel adventure romp and i love that i love the fact Mm. that it's not just because i think i loved about the first one is and totally differently to this i love the first film in the sense that it is just he's trapped in the past he needs to get back but he also needs to fix the mess that he's caused yeah with this it is just everything sort of spirals when you think it's over he goes back and everything's wrong and you've got that whole other world and not just about seeing oh this is really cool visualizing this sort of um area this city in the past like in the 50s but also visualizing it not just in the future but an alternate present day where things could have gone differently um and and pl- and playing around that i think is is fascinating to see and they managed to bring yeah. all these different time zones all these different ideas together it's what the first film is but on a bigger budget and a sort of bigger mindset i think the first film is brilliant on a mm. on a sort of low key um standalone film note but as a sequel this is one of the best sequels i think i've ever seen in in sort of filmmaking where the step up like it's it's very similar to that of the first film it follows a, a kind of a similar narrative in terms of you know time timelines and all that sort of thing it's but, a lot of the same beats exactly mm-hmm. but it also like 
it, it manages to create all these different worlds, all these different ideas. It builds so much on the character development of the first film, specifically with Marty yeah. and Doc, maybe not so much with the parents, but it does build on these people. And I think that's, that that's just incredible. You know what I mean? I, and yeah. I think that's I, so I brilliant. Think, yeah, of course. I think you hit the nail on the head when you just described it as what, what it is. It's kind of like a fun, campy, sci-fi time travel romp, you know? Yeah. But, Personally, I, I I respect it a lot for for being mm. that and going all out on it, and I enjoy it a lot for, because of the fact that it is that. But personally, I think like over the years, the reason that that's that's caused me to appreciate the first one a lot more over the second one is that I'm just always going to enjoy a more kind of like character focused smaller scale thing than I am a, a sort of big sci-fi romp I know that's kind of strange coming from a Doctor Who fan but like yeah <laughs> but it's, it's just, no, but it's true, it's just like, my own personal yeah. taste but I think that's fair enough and I think as a film Back to the Future 1 is a better film probably but I think if mm. I'm talking about enjoyment, if I'm talking about if I was going to sit down, turn my brain off for a couple hours and, and stick on one of these films, it would always be the second one. Because I feel like it's one of those ones that so much happens and it, it's so like, I, I just, I, I think there's a more, there's, there's, it's more exciting, I think, uh, in, some, like, in terms of like an adventure, which just depends on what you look for in a film. If we're talking about mm. which is the best of the three films, it's the first one. If we're talking about which one I personally enjoy more when I put them on, Probably the second one because of the the style of it, because of what they try and do with it. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely one. fine. It certainly is like a case by case basis kind mm. of thing. It's just kind of like what you look for as a moviegoer, mm. which is which is which is absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, I think again, we'll we'll talk because we've talked about characters before. Um, one person who strikes so much better in this film um, is uh, Tom F. Wilson, who plays Biff. All different mm. versions of Biff, Griff, and whatever yeah. their other names are. <laughs> he's excellent in this film. He's excellent Absolutely. again um, as uh, young Biff from the 50s. Like, mm. re reprising that role and doing it slightly better. Mm. Um, but as well as old Biff, um, modern day, like, Donald Trump Biff, and then Griff <laughs> as well, who is just... I, you know what I love about that is you can tell how much fun he's having with that role because he just gets to be yeah. absolutely batshit. It's, like, it's yes. like Biff, but on a different level in terms of his voice, in terms of his mannerisms. It's exactly the same, but also it's totally different because, I don't know, it's a weird one, but it's so funny to watch because he's just sort of the way he talks and his yeah. mannerisms are so ridiculous. It's just this perfect mix of kind of like campy and psychotic almost yeah, in his performance. Yeah, exactly. Griff. It's, 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 it's so good. It's, it's one of those things where like Griff as a character is not in it much. He's only in the first bit in like 2015, but he leaves mm. such an impression. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's, and that's all down to the performance. <clears throat> oh, so 100%. The mannerisms, the delivery of certain lines, like, like I said, the idiosyncrasies, uh, just the weird kind of pauses and inflections. It all leaves such a lasting impression on the audience. Absolutely. Which, yeah, he, he's great. You know, and and the same goes for for his performance as Biff. I said that in the first film, he came across as the weakest in playing an older version of himself. But by the time of the second one, it's been what like four years between films because they oh. were originally planning to oh. make a second one. He's 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 been able to nail that a lot more. He he sells the kind of like old man version of Biff from 2015 so perfectly especially like I talked a lot about it it's cool to see the contrast between like the older and younger versions but in, in Back to the Future Part 2 you get it like like in the scene you get that contrast in the scene because of the bit mm. where 
2015 Biff gets to interact with 1955 Biff. You know, you get to have that conversation between yeah. the two, and and very much pick out all the similarities, but all the differences. And it's, yeah. it's it's just it's great. It's a great thing in in all kind of. It's it's kind of a cliche, but it's it's always a great thing to pop up when you have like two versions of the same character who get to interact. Obviously, being a fan of Doctor Who, that mm. is a that is a that is a trope that pops up a lot, and it's always entertaining. But, to what me. I think is fascinating about the way they do it in this is the use and, and the sort of the talent in the filmmaking that is so prevalent because of the fact that it's just the same actor twice. And they make it just mm. so believable. They make it feel like... I mean, they're, yeah, they're playing the same character in two different... But yeah. It makes you feel like they're both played by different actors because it's so seamless. There's a shot mm. where... And I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but there's a shot where old Biff is outside the cafe and Griff is in the, in, like, in the cafe... And they sort of interact. He's outside the window. Yeah, he's outside the window, and they sort of interact and, and they go out, and you can sort of see where you can sort of you can like note where they cut it if you're looking close enough. But it's yeah. seamless. You can't tell. You just know Absolutely. vaguely that's where they would do it, and that talent is so like because you couldn't get that with the first film. And I'm not trying to say again, not like trying to make too many comparisons, but again, like in terms of what you don't want a sequel to be is you don't want it to be the same. You want it to do hit some of the same nails on the head, but really elevate it, give you something new to look forward to when you're watching it. And this film mm. does play in the, some of the same time periods with some of the same characters, yet it manages to create some very new and interesting sort of things. This franchise is a little bit synonymous with having the same moments repeated over and over again in different places yeah. with different it's, meanings. It's repetitive in that, in and that, that sense, and almost. that is fun, but it does come across a little bit... I like I when watching all three films together I do get sick of Marty waking up to a different version of his mum in yeah. all three films like it's just yeah, that's the big one it, that, that's the one that just it, it, I, I get why they're doing it but it's like come on you've done this joke like you've you've done it and but this is this is what I mean is when it, with a sequel it, what it did play on even in the sort of smaller senses of having the sort of Biff interact with himself you know it's the same actor but they do it so bloody well that couldn't have been yeah. easy to do. That couldn't have been. In terms of, it could, obviously not, but in terms of uh, going on your point there about the kind of repetition throughout like all films, obviously the bit where he's waking up uh, in like his, his version of his mum's room is like mm. the most egregious, I'd say. But one yeah. where one point where I'd say the repetition uh, works effectively is through the production design, especially in the the town square. Oh, 100%. Because it's 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 the same yeah. town square set in every single film. Yeah. Uh, well, not really in in part three because it's like it's more of a desert. But like say in part Part one and part two it's the same town square set in 1985 1955 uh, 2015 biff's alternate like kind of big casino yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, 1985 and the production design is incredible you it's know? so good because it allows you to see like it's it's almost like it's the same place but different you know but it's the way exactly. they kind of imagine how to like show this exact same square of land like in different ways you know which is always is just is just incredible to me yeah you know? and that's what where like kind of the the repetition worked and i think also the kind of like the same beats being hit on work in a sense that at the end of the day this trilogy is is going for is, it's trying to be a comedy you know that's what like mm. Rob, robert zemeckis and, and bob gale always said it's it's meant back to the future is meant to be a comedy and every time they do it it's like it's almost changed in a way that especially in the third one we'll get to it is like kind of comedic where Obviously, every time he wakes up, he's like, "Oh, you're my mum." But then, when he wakes up in the third one, he's like, 
who are you? Like, that, that's kind of the joke. Yeah. We've done this so many times, but now he doesn't even know, like, yeah. what, what, what the story behind any of this is. Yeah. But the repetition works in a way that it gets across this theme that history repeats itself, I'd say. Mm. The same beats being hit on over and over again in different time periods work well because it runs parallel to the stuff in the first one and the second one of a character being able to relate to certain members in his family by experiencing the same things. Yeah. You know? It works on the comedic level because of the stuff that I talked about just there. Yeah. But it works in, in that sense as well. Yeah, no. Like, I, I think in terms of repetition, I think that does work quite well. I love the fact mm. that it is all very clearly like a cl- like a little set that they made. I, you know, I do. Yeah, yeah. I know like... It's, it's, that, it's a that, set. It's, I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen the Twilight Zone. It's a set that's been used in, in stuff like that that is quite obvious. Uh, like it's, it's been used in more yeah. stuff than just Back to the Future. Really? So, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. that but I, that's... I, I love that though. I feel like it's like a little model village. I, I I quite like that aesthetic. I know that's not what they probably were going for, but I love that you can just tell it's just this like little square lot of like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I love that, and it's so I don't know. I, I that's the one sort of instance of repetition that I think works really well. Um, hmm. like because it's so iconic. Again, the same thing with the car. Like it's so iconic to see. Hill Valley and, and, and the clock tower and all that sort of stuff. I think it's brilliant. Um, yeah. The kind of like picturesque, what you're talking about, and it's very kind of like picturesque, the town square almost, like it isn't almost believable. It, it does kind of feel like a, a set almost works most effectively, I'd say, in 1955, when it is trying to be <laughs> Hill Valley, a nice place to live. You know, you meant to kind of, it's almost like mm. a, 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 like a neighborhood that's almost set up to make you want to live there because of the fact that it, it is meant to kind of feel new and, mm. and like you you like more pe- more and more people moving in and by the time it gets to 1985 it's more kind of run down you know yeah. it works the best like on a meta level it works best best looking like a set when it is that time period i'd say over any others so. yeah no i think that's that's fair enough i think it i don't know I, i'm trying to think of more instances of sort of like repetition throughout the series really but i mean I think there's the there's the skateboard slash hoverboard chase. Uh, there's the skateboard chase in the first one, the hoverboard one in 2015 uh, with Biff's goons. I don't mind That's that like kind of the same thing. I right? don't really mind no, that. Neither. I, I think like, the, again the other one that I don't mind like the manure joke. I I quite like that. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me. Maybe because I'm like I've got a very basic sense of humour that I find someone being flung into a pile of shit funny. But yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, even saying that, who doesn't find that funny? I mean, that's it's good. It's good in the second one because it plays off of the first one where he hits the truck and he's quite uh, kind of he's, he's agitated, but he's very kind of reserved and more more passive aggressive. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna get him, you know, because mm. like, he's got plans. But in the second one, obviously for for this Biff, that was only like a few hours ago or like a day ago or so whatever. Mm. So when he hits the truck again after the hoverboard chase in the tunnel, right, and he's he's just left yeah. sort of exclaiming and screaming at the top of his lungs, I hate Manon it's just so much funny because of that mm. like context when you realize like it's the kind of build up to that that's what i like about the second film as a whole i'd say it kind of it its best beats are like they build off of the first film in a sense yeah I'd say. they don't try and do the same thing as the first one but, but like, that's that's they what try i know and about elevate them a lot of things would try that i mean terminator for example i think it does i don't know if you've seen those films um, uh, yeah, I've seen. But I've seen all they, those like, films, they, yeah. they step up from like Terminator One to Terminator Two, but then Terminator Three is just Terminator Two again. You know, what I mean, it's yeah. like it's it, it's just repetitive. Whereas with this, I feel like, especially since they shot Part Two and Part Three back to back, there's a sort of clear 
vision of like there's a they are all different films but they all work as one big story hmm. i think back to the yeah. future one's the only standalone one that you could really have but you could what yeah. you could either watch just the one or you could watch the whole thing as like one big story and it works either way and i love that um definitely and i think that that that's why again i think that's why the trilogy is so appealing but also why you could never and if you're listening don't they are filmmakers all that sort of thing you should not make a back to the future 4 that no don't ever do that because the whole selling point of this is that it's all one vision it all works all the way through you could not do it again as you said lightning in a bottle you can't recreate that now it's not star wars it's Mm. not anything like that and that's i think why i love this trilogy is because it's not like indiana jones or star wars where it's going to get picked up it'll get recast or there'll be a new, new this or that sort of thing like oh marty mcfly's son that's never going to happen hopefully no and it shouldn't you know, it shouldn't like, it, it shouldn't. shouldn't you know the thing is <clears throat> annoyingly if they did make that i'd probably go and see it because i'd want to know what they were going to do with it but <laughs> we're trapped as fans yeah in that sense, it's, it's difficult constant it's kind difficult. of like cycle because like it's a self-fulfilling cycle as a fan because you know because you because you, you know christopher lloyd would do it in a heartbeat yeah because he, he appeared yeah. in that um seth MacFarlane film um mm. yeah he did he, he cameoed in that he was very kind of hands-on in the, the stage he yeah. was very kind of hands-on in the stage production that came out recently yes you know yes. he was in a lot of the promotional material for that he yeah. gave it his endorsement and, and the like so he, we know he would do it definitely. oh in a, in, a, in a heartbeat yeah what do you think about the, the stage thing anyway? Because I haven't seen much about it, but I've only seen it like advertised. I thought of like, I get a bit sick of seeing everything turn into a musical, but I'm not sure. I saw it when it came out. Like I was one of the, yeah. I, You've I, actually I been in it seen it. In, yeah, I, I saw it in uh, February, like right before um, like everything went oh, shit. bad. You know? Yeah, like, like obviously things in the UK, where we're both from, things mm. went bad around like <clears throat> March-wise. Mm. And, and by the end by the end of March, we, we went to our first lockdown. But I managed to see it uh, at the start of February, around the time of my birthday. I think it was like a week or so after my birthday. Mm. Um, and yeah, as like a fan and knowing it had like the involvement and the seal of approval of the makers, I couldn't help but not enjoy it. It's not, it, it's nowhere near the film. It's it's purely adaptation of the first film, by the way. Yeah. Um, like none of the elements of the sequels come in, uh, but I, I couldn't help but in, enjoy myself, to be honest, as I was seeing it. They do make some changes to make it work to sort of like modern sensibilities and the way like it works on stage. And everything. Like for example, like little things that can be changed, like the dog Einstein is not, in the play like at all right right like they just cut it out completely I don't think they, because they, what they'd yeah. have to do no they don't need it what they'd have to do though with that is that they'd have to get like a dog like a person in a dog suit which would be quite awkward to yeah. watch i think yeah that would be quite strange that would be a uh, so one. they just cut out the dog you know uh but yeah i thought it was strangely quite funny as well like there were a lot of new jokes because it, it did have bob gale involved in everything there were a lot of new jokes oh, right. that were kind of like tongue-in-cheek and breaking the fourth wall and very kind of like aware of the fact that this is a stage production of a film that everyone's already here for mm. which I, I i quite appreciate um to, to wrap up my thoughts on it though i think it's if you get the chance i do i do recommend it you know i don't mm. don't go expecting to be like be blown away or anything but i think it's coming back in london which i know is like probably I don't, I, like a track depending on mm. where you are in the world people who are listening to this um i got to see it in manchester where it first premiered because uh, i'm close to there but um yeah i recommend it i, I it, it's a fun time i'd say um that's good yeah that's an interesting one i i i i, I get a bit weird out with these things because you sort of see them pop up and you're like 
How do you, like, that's one, that actually, just as a sort of personal question for that, actually. How do they make mm. it a musical? Does that work? Because I, I worry. Strangely, yes. Oh, God, really? Like, yeah, there, there are some, there are some musical moments that, like, are kind of, like, superfluous and don't really fit into anything. But there are other, there are other moments that I feel like work quite well and the songs are actually quite good. They use, like, the, it benefits from the fact that they do have musical numbers based around the Huey Lewis songs. Right. Like, those are in it. Like, Back in Time plays at the end, and Parallel of plays at the beginning, and all that kind of stuff, and it's the characters singing it instead. But <laughs> Biff gets a number, uh, where, yeah, where he's kind of like... <laughs> literally, where it, 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 like I said, it benefits from the fact that it's very kind of tongue-in-cheek and almost ironic in mm. a sense... You know, in the way it kind of carries itself. But like, for God's sake, Biff and Marty get a musical number where, like, Biff is chasing Marty around the 1955 high school, mm. and it's this big kind of like sprawling thing where, like, constantly changing sets and everything. And it's just, it's just a fun ride. Right, you know? right, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like you're not going for a perfect adaptation of of the film, right? Mm. You're going for just this kind of like fun, semi-ironic new take on it that, thankfully, has like the involvement of the original creators. Well, that's right. Like, I, to be fair, I didn't realise it had that heavy involvement with the original creators in it. So that is interesting. I might actually have a look at that, though, because I'm not... I've already seen it advertised a couple of times. I was like, oh, God, I don't know about that. Like, like Alan Silvestri, the composer of the original score, is involved. You know, he yeah. helped write some of the, the new music. Yeah, literally. So Alan Silvestri's involved, uh, Bob Gale... Uh, I think uh, I'm not don't don't quote me on this but Robert Zemeckis is involved to an extent as mm. well like yeah it has like the big names attached and everything obviously Christopher Lloyd and everything so mm. um, yeah it, it makes for a a new and interesting experience that's interesting so. well, I'll definitely I'll definitely look into that I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've seen it because I had absolutely no idea like how it would have worked so it's good to get that little bit of uh, insight there um hmm on a sort of, is there anything else you sort of want to mention about Back to the Future Two? <clears throat> <laughs> okay, this has nothing to do with the filmmaking. It's just a gripe I've had for so long. Go on, get um, off your chest. Now it's it's less. Mm, when you go into a film that has that works on time travel logic, a rule that you've kind of got to like abide by is don't think too hard about the time travel. If, if, if it's a good enough film on its own, you shouldn't have to. And that's the case with the first one, right? Yeah. You shouldn't have to. Like, and, and the second one to an extent. You shouldn't have to think about yeah. the time travel because you're just so wrapped up in the fun of it all, you know, mm. all, all the characters. But especially upon watching it recently, I watched it uh, a few days ago, all three films, just to kind of have them be like fresh in my mind. Something that only just dawned on me the other day is that the second film... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like nitpick here go for on, the no, sake go of on, it. Because why yeah. not? Um, the second film shouldn't work at all like time travel wise how do you and i'm only bringing how, how it up. do you mean in what in what sense because i'm actually curious because i always thought it did work yeah okay so the way the, the reason i now. take more of it the reason the reason i take more of an issue with the second one than i do the first one in terms of time travel logic is because they actively try and bring more attention to stuff like paradoxes like marty can't meet himself uh, in 1955, you know, when they go back again and he has to, like, hide mm. around in the leather jacket and everything, they can't meet themselves because it would cause a paradox and everything. So that, that can't be allowed. Mm. So, when Biff, old Biff, takes the almanac back to the 50s, that creates a new 1985 where he's, like, a, a rich, corrupt millionaire and he's completely transformed the town and Marty's dad is dead and his mom is, like, um, married to Biff and Doc Brown is is committed to a, to a mental institution. Um, so, 
in that case, in this new timeline, there wouldn't have been a single point where the time machine could have been invented. Like, because Doc is committed to a mental asylum, and Marty had a completely different upbringing, where you assume he never met Doc, surely when Biff took the almanac back, there should have immediately been a paradox, because the time machine could never have existed at that point. And the reason I, I noticed that was because when he shows the newspaper where he's committed, oh. I'm like, okay, so, so reasonably, how did he break out, you know? Yeah. Like, how did he break out of the mental institution? He shouldn't have been able to. Like, they should have just oh. faded away at that moment, and that was it. Like, You're right. Because it's a difficult one, because I never really think about that. Because in my head, it's sort of like... Because, in a sense, you've got two different time travel theories being used at the same time, which doesn't work. Mm. The theory there, the of course, is that, The first film works, like, though. Yeah. This is sort of... The, 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 the sort of... Um, that, that sort of thing, it plays on the whole... Very similar to that sort of thing of, like, Avengers Endgame, where it's like, it doesn't matter... That it's like yeah. you're you're just you're in a different timeline. You still exist because your past still exists. But yeah. the thing is, well, it's easy to to get on with with in Avengers Endgame because they just go, oh, it doesn't matter. Like whatever you do in the past doesn't change the future. It's like mm. okay, fair enough. Yeah, like carry on then. You know, it's a difficult one. Yeah, you're right because that does change everything. So at that point, mm. they shouldn't have. But that does that technically that does cause a paradox, doesn't it? Though because it's the time. Yeah, yeah. the time machine was never invented. He could have never have gone back and. It works in the first one, though, because even though the future has changed, his parents and family are living a better life, they go out of their way to establish that somehow the events have still played out the same way so that Marty and Doc ended up meeting and Doc ended up making the time machine, you know, because yeah. when he comes back to 1985 and the end of the first one, even though the mall name has changed, you know, mm. like the, the Libyans are still there, Doc and Marty are still there, they're still doing the experiment with like the, the, the camcorder and everything. But in this one, when they come back to 1985 and the future has changed, Change. There's they, no way, like the time machine could have ever been able to they, have been made. They should have. Marty and Doc met each they other. They should have started fading away in that sequence. Yeah, literally. Really. That well, if not, it was to not, work, but I mean, they could have really played around with it as long as they started fading away. Well, yeah. Not even that though. Biff should have never been able to take the almanac back because as soon as he did, the time machine for him to have done so would have never existed. So the whole thing should have gone paradox at that point. Mm. You know, mm, yeah. So like, because when they go back, like obviously, when they're in 1985, Biff's 1985. They're like, okay, we got to go back oh, now and fix it to 1955. Yeah, I'm the, really yeah, trying the, to like think thing, about it. The, oh. the, 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 the last thing I'll say that doesn't work is that when they go back to 1955, themselves, like Marty from the original timeline, yeah. is there, but he shouldn't be because that timeline doesn't exist anymore. You know? Oh fuck. <laughs> Literally, yeah. I've, just, I've just blown it wide open, right? It doesn't work. Yeah, you're right, yeah. And the only Shit. reason I'm bringing attention to it is because they go out of their way to be like, you can't meet your past self because it would create a paradox, you know? This is, this is in a way, using the sort of Avengers Endgame logic of time travel, whereas the first mm. film doesn't use that. That's where it doesn't work. It's sort of one or the other, you can't use both. In the first one, they established yeah. that it does change the future, which is why they're fading away. That's the crux of the film. However... If they tried to do that with this film, it wouldn't exist. <laughs> it wouldn't. Yes. It wouldn't work. It, get, it gets a so bit too So they use the Avengers Endgame idea of that. It does change it, but it opens up a new timeline. But if you go back, all those events still happen. Things don't get wiped from existence. Mm. You still went back to the fifties. So in the fifties, before this time differentiation existed, you're still there yeah. in the past. And when we go there, you'll still be there unchanged, and we can still change it. 
the sort of your your past. Oh my god, you've you've totally literally just killed me off. I've blown it wide open. Sorry, um, right, I've ruined Back to the Future Part Two in terms of timeline logic. But yeah, but yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, to move on from that, there's one final point that I want to bring up, which I really like about Back to the Future uh, Two. Well, a, a much more simple note that won't confuse anyone. Hopefully, before we go on our little break yeah. and then talk, talk about the, th- the third film. Um, one thing I love about the fact that it was shot back to back is this film does something so unique. I've never seen any other film do that I absolutely adore is that is it has a trailer for the next film at the end of yeah. it yeah which is just a Marvel style trailer incredible. but yeah. not even like Marvel because they have like a little clip that they could film but this is like a mm. full like two minute trailer for the next film yeah. which did it come out like a year after or something yeah, literally. Uh, Back to Future Part 2 was 1989 and Back to Future Part 3 was 1990. Yeah, that's like the difference of like Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. But with them, yeah. even then, you got like a little teaser, you didn't get anything. Whereas this, like, this is like a full trailer for the next film. Yeah, I love like, that. People need to see. People need to see. It's the whole to be concluded thing as well. It's yeah. like it keeps people on the edge of the seat. Like it was yeah, almost yeah. like it treats itself like it was an event of its day, which it probably was. You know, like oh, what's gonna happen? I, it's next, one of those things you know? where I watch that when I see the trailer at the end of that. Even though I know the third film, I know how it ends. I know all this sort of stuff. When I see the trailer at the end of the second film, it's like yeah, I want. I wish I was there when this came out. I wish I could have seen mm. this in cinema and been like, oh my Absolutely. God, this is all the next film. Oh, oh, this is amazing. Oh, you'd Can't leave wait. the theatre feeling so gassed. Yeah. Yeah, literally. That's, that's brilliant. And, you know, I, that's one thing that I really take away from this film. Whenever I finish it, it always gives me like a nice warm feeling because it finishes on such a good note like that. Um, mm. But yeah, that's, mm. I think, wrapped up Back to the Future 2. Let's not think about it too much more before we uh, implode. Um, So we're going to go on uh, a last little break before we come back and talk about our final segment, and then Back to the Future 3. See you all in a minute. Welcome back to the final part of our Back to the Future trilogy review podcast episode for Spill Your Beans. I'm still here with Joel. We're going to be talking about our final little segment here, which is delightfully called the 64K Ultra Mega HD range. We ask our guests to pick out a particular film that they enjoy that is going to be added to this collection. Again, get out of the way, Criterion Collection. We don't want any more steelbooks. This is the top of the crop. It's so rare for a film to get added to this. And you get the lucky honour of picking one film that can go in this little range. Mm. So, what do you pick? Have you got any honourable mentions as well? That's another. I thing. have. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck to... on two. I'm stuck on like two in particular at the moment. I'm gonna. Mm. I'm gonna. By the end of this, I'm gonna choose one. Um, obviously, in the in the record spinner one, I mentioned uh, the Francis Ford Coppola film, The Conversation, which I recommend to all because I think it's just kind of mm. a perfect. Uh, character study a very kind of like personal uh, piece which deals on like one kind of explores one person's psyche for the whole thing the way I would describe it was it's about uh, a surveillance man in the 70s because it's set in like Mm. it's contemporary to when it was made it's about a, a surveillance man who's incredibly paranoid about being watched 
uh, because of his li- line of work is kind of conditioned to be mm. that. And I feel like that setup for a character is already so simple yet so perfect. But mm. the way the the sort of conflict that comes in is when he's hired to spy on the wife of like a, a top kind of uh, big conglomeration, big business, you know, kind of like skyscraper stuff. He's, he's hired mm. by the head of this company <clears throat> to spy on his wife who he believes might sort of be be cheating on him. It's not like fully disclosed like why like he was hired to spy on his wife, but like stuff along those lines, uh, and it kind of deals with his his the, the main character's moral um, opposition to what he's being asked to do and what he's being paid for. You know, because he, he he's listening to the tapes that he's recorded of like uh, the wife and her friend like over and over and over again. He's he's starting to very much fear mm. for what this boss might do when he finds out what's going on and it's it's very it's one of those that keeps you guessing the whole way through uh in mm. in, in the best way possible not like it's it's so good literally like that's, what, that's <laughs> all i can say let's just get it down it's so i can't like i can't say much because it you're better in you're better off going in blind like it's, it's just mm. it's just one of those you shouldn't know much about the plot other than what i've said going in uh, but like yeah I highly recommend that the other one I'd say though like I said I'm gonna decide which of these two is gonna be the one but we all know M. Night Shyamalan right mm-hmm. we all know yeah. the kind of um, he's a good mate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the kind of um, downward spiral that was the career of, of that man in a sense in terms of like quality of films uh, everyone knows yeah, yeah. everyone knows uh, like <laughs> He started off with a with a modern classic that it's yeah it's safe to say it's a modern classic of the the, the sixth sense everyone yeah. that's the one everyone knows but I feel like everyone has at least like one other M Night Shyamalan film they like um, mm. uh, and for me that is Unbreakable his second ever okay. feature film starring Bruce Willis and Samuel L Jackson um, it's kind of spoilers I, I guess kind of it's kind of the greatest superhero film ever made. Like I'm not going to mm. give much away in terms of the plot, but if you don't know already, mm. it's kind of like a commentary on on superheroes and their place in culture without it being about guys dressed in capes, you know, and, and mm. spandex and stuff like that. It takes the concept from a very kind of realist perspective, you know. It places mm. the idea of superpowered individuals and puts it in the real world, and it's just a beautifully crafted story about fate and what it means to belong in this world and all sort mm. of elements like that taken from the perspective of the of like two opposite sides of the same coin in Bruce Willis's character David Dunn and Samuel L. Jackson's character of um Miss I don't want to spoil it Elijah right I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call him Elijah right I don't want to spoil mm. anything yeah, it's it's another one. It's M Night Shyamalan. So if you haven't seen it, it does have a few twists and turns, which I won't spoil. So mm. w- once again, it's one of those things where you're best going in blind. But yeah, I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite scripts. It's one of my favorite stories ever put to film. Yeah, de- definitely check it out. So I'd say after those yeah. two, I'm gonna have to go on Unbreakable because I made the okay. conversation. I made the conversation my record spinner pick. So just to be fair, I'm gonna go with Unbreakable, especially because Unbreakable is my second favorite film of all time. I'd say just after Back to the Future, and I don't mm. think it gets nearly enough attention. So that's gonna be the one. Okay. Unbreakable, directed by M Night Shyamalan. So. Brilliant, great choice. Again, I haven't seen it. I really, it's wow. on my list to watch. <laughs> it's on my list to watch. I'm sort of like, I'm working my way towards it, but. You know, it's one of those things because I'm familiar with where... I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I know some things of, like, 
with his other films, let's say, with mm. um, obviously Split and the follow-up to that, um, and how they were received. So it's been quite a difficult one to go. And it's in the same way that I've never really watched Game of Thrones because I know it ends like poorly. Really? It's, wow, that's it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's difficult to well, go. Well, well, yeah, no, I'll thing. sit down and watch eight seasons if it ends really badly. If I know well, it ends well, really yeah, badly, yeah, that's it's the thing. Bit off topic now, it. but there's no point introducing someone to a show like that anymore because of the fact yeah. that it's just it's just known so widely that it ends horribly. There's no point trying to incentivize. You can't incentivize yeah. someone into watching it now, like putting their time into eight seasons of a TV show that you know going in is going to end horribly. So I, d I don't blame you, honestly. If you, if you weren't watching it when it was happening, then yeah. you just kind of can't watch it now because it's pointless. And that's kind of yeah. how I feel a little bit with, where, like, a little bit with um, Unbreakable, but I'm still, I'm going to watch it. It's just been put back on my to-watch list yeah. um, in exchange for other things more recently. But the way you've talked about it there, I definitely, I need to watch this film. <laughs> mm. yeah, it's, I need it's, to watch it's amazing it. because the, the twist, obviously, like, spo spoilers, there's a twist. I'm not going to say what the twist is. Like, there's you always may a know twist, because, yeah. yeah. There's always a twist in them, like Shyamalan films. But the film isn't made by the twist, I'd say. It elevates it because it, it's mm. perfect in terms of the themes it's trying to build and, and like, how it works in terms of, like, uh, the, the character relationships. But... It, it's the film isn't made by the twist, you know. That's what makes it so special to me because of the fact mm. that it just it just focuses on the kind of the the beautiful story of of David Dunn learning to find his place in the world, you know, and finally becoming mm. the person he's supposed to be, which I just find endlessly fascinating. You know, I just think it it has expert character work is the point I'm trying to make. You know, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, it's yeah. it's 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 perfect. I need to watch it, <laughs> and I yeah. find that with a lot of things when someone brings up a film on the uh, 64K Ultra Mega HD range that I haven't seen, I'm sort of like, oh god, I need to watch this now. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but great choice. Um, Thank we're going to jump yeah. over to um, the final film in the Back to the Future trilogy. And one that I think people sort of notoriously shit on quite a lot mm. out of three, because I think it's the most different and it's the most left field. But I don't think this is a bad film by any means. No, definitely not. You know, like it's not a bad film. It just happens to be the weakest in the trilogy. I think you would agree. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. just kind of the curse of trilogies. I think, in a sense, it's the same with with the original Star Wars trilogy. It's the, mm. the, the sequel trilogy, even same with the Godfather. You know, uh, it's just it, it, more, yeah. nine times out of ten, the third one will be the weakest. It's yeah, and I think you're, you're you're absolutely right there, especially with the comparison to Star Wars. I couldn't agree more. Is that you feel that like there's so much expectation on the last one. Mm. Um, with this though, I, I feel like. The only thing that people don't really like about it, I think, is probably that it's just not in the same setting. Like, it's not in sort of vaguely modern-day Hill Valley. That's mm. the only real sort of drawback from people. I, I think because it's so different to the previous... I mean, it is the same, but it's so different in terms of its setting. Because it just yeah. puts them in this western, and they have to just get out of it. It's basically the first film, but without the whole timeline stuff. Mm. So you can kind of understand why people like it a bit less because the first film had all oh, the timeline stuff he's got to correct the timeline so he doesn't like get wiped from existence but he's also got to get back to the future the second one you've got all this stuff going on whether it makes sense or not he's got all this stuff happening and in the last one it's okay they're stuck here they need to get back yeah but there's it's... no timeline stuff there's no and i think that's the problem with this is it is a lot more grounded than the previous films which mm. is in, i suppose in some way a negative but I think is actually, especially on rewatch, a positive. I, I actually quite like that this is 
you couldn't just do another uh, huge adventure again. I think this is kind of exactly the way it, sh it should have gone. Yeah, I'd say I've spent uh, a while trying to figure out exactly what doesn't work about it because on, in concept, it's almost the same as the first one and it takes place mm. uh, for the majority in, in one time. Like, the first one takes place for the majority in 1955, and this one takes place... Like, you're grounded in one place and one time. So, like, theoretically, mm. it should work in the same way, but it doesn't. Mm. And I've spent the longest time trying to figure out why, and I think that's just because the character stuff just, just isn't as good, I think. Like, but... Yeah, it, it's the timeline stuff as well, though, I think, because there's no stakes. Hmm. The stake just of this trying to is, get them back again, you know. The stake, the stake of this is, can they save Doc Brown? Yeah, of course. But you know, you know he's gonna live. That I, I think it's, it's a really difficult one because in the first one, yeah, they had that thing about getting back, and that was already a stress. But the thing that built on on it was that he's running out of time, and he yeah. really needs to make this work exactly. And they try and do that with this one, but instead of it being getting his parents together. It's sort of like he just has to stop what's already happened, which is Doc Brown getting shot um, mm. by this what, gunslinger. What I was going to say about like the, the way the reason that the character work doesn't work as well is that the it's just there's a strange disconnect in the in the first one. You have uh, your, your protagonist Amai, who is constantly involved in all things going on. He's very much like the kind of gateway into everything that's happening. He has a direct hand with Doc in trying to get back, and he has a direct mm. hand. Uh, in trying to get his parents back together because he has directly messed those events up, so he has to fix them. Uh, but in the third one, it's almost Doc's film in that he's the one yeah. with the most development and he has a romance and Marty is almost kind of there for a lot of it in that like his main motivation is he's just trying to get him and Doc back to the future. You know, what, sorry. That's, uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> I said this, but you're, said not, you're not wrong though. I, I think that's, that's a fair point is it almost feels like they've flipped roles here. Yeah, but it, dra it feels like it Marty drags feels... a lot more because of the fact that you... Sorry, it drags a lot more because yeah. of the fact that you feel that Marty, for most of the runtime, is kind of waiting around whilst Doc is off doing his own thing, which mm. frankly just feels underdeveloped. I know, like, in the first one, you, you can say the romance between Lorraine and George is, is, is quite underdeveloped, but it works because it's like it's more like younger love, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a bit tongue in cheek, you know, the whole like Florence Nightingale effect that you'd like, you'd fall in love with your, with your patient almost in the, in mm, the case of, mm. in the case of Lorraine. Um, but in, in the third one, I just find for some reason, the romance between Doc and, and Clara, uh, Clara Clayton to be a lot less believable and a lot mm. more underdeveloped because of the fact I know they haven't spent much time together, you know, mm. like, yeah, and that's just me, really. Like, I, I I agree with that. I think uh, one thing I always didn't like about the original was that relationship with Clara. I feel like the the difficult one about this is they make Clara this this character that you that you're supposed to like, but then also a character that causes all of the problems of the film. Hmm. Basically, yeah. Like she's the reason why Doc's drunk. Yeah. At, yeah. At, at, at the begin, like at the end of the film, she's like. She then stops Doc from getting in the car. So there's a sort of genuine like frustration from the audience, which I don't know whether that was intentional. Part of me wants to believe it is. Part of me doesn't want to think that's a mistake. But I, I kind of have to look at it and go, I don't think that was the best idea. Trying to give us a character that you want us to love with Doc. 
Like you yeah. want us to really like their relationship. You want us to like her. You want to root yet for their happy you, ending. You know. Yeah. Yet you are basically just kind of ruining something there that mm. by, by having two significant moments of the story at the climax where Doc is supposed to be doing a certain thing so him and Marty can get back to the future. Yet. It, she ruins that. That's the problem, I think, with her character here, is that she's not only not only doing this, and we, we're being told we kind of have to like her, and she's not really doing anything likeable, but also yeah. she's a new character. Mm. And I think in a franchise where a lot of the characters are played by the same people, it's very difficult to adapt to a new character being the main focus of the film. Mm. Uh, you know, like, even, like, the villain of this film is played by... Tom F. Wilson, um, you yeah, know, as, um, as Buford, Mad Dog Tannen, Mad Dog uh, Tannen, and, he, and he's kind of he's brilliant in this, as yeah. he is in the second one. He's so bloody good in this, mm. um, and he loses himself totally in this role, especially. And I think that's brilliant. But I think again, you see these these strange things. It, it almost feels like they took a bit of a different turn for this. And I'm not saying that like. Clara should have been someone we recognise but it was a very strange choice and unless you can really back up that decision with some really solid storytelling to really get the audience on board never mind the whole thing about her actually ruining some of the parts of the story where we're supposed to be rooting for Doc and Marty yeah. it, it makes it really difficult and you've got to ask the question was that intentional or is it not uh, to be honest on rewatch I actually quite liked her character I didn't actually mind I thought it was a bit more believable than I previously yeah, she's remember not it being she's not particularly annoying you know like anything that she like she's quite no, no, she's no. quite nice and like her her relationship with Doc especially uh, in instances like uh, instances sorry like the dance uh, I think is mm. quite sweet but yeah there is kind of a, a thing that she does kind of disturb the the nature of the, the the duo that we had in the first two films that was quite a, a lot more entertaining yeah. you know she does because it is a case of as soon as she's introduced like doc and marty kind of have their own things going on a bit separate of each other and it's like it, yeah as a result it leads it to to drag a lot more if that I, makes I feel sense. like this i feel like this would have been better if doc wasn't infatuated by her from the, the from the get-go and he mm. slowly falls in love with her over the film yeah, because he's, he clearly loves her straight away, and the the feelings mutual. But like, mm. if she kept following him around, and he was like, "No, oh, fuck off," like, <laughs> and then he eventually like at the dance and stuff, and then he like he sort of gives in a little bit. He defends her in front of like um, Mad Dog. That would have been so much more believable, I find, where he has to he feel Doc feels like for the first time in, in his life he's like stepping up, um, yeah. and you know he's dancing with this woman he's, he's, he's actually growing as a person and being in the wild west has changed him as a man from someone who is a man of science to going back to this very primitive time it was something that that really should have been a big test on the thing and you say it's doc's story but i don't feel like doc has any development it go it's like a light switch it's not a transition it's not a gradient mm. it's just he's doc and now he's doc who's in love yeah definitely if it was more gradual i feel this film would have been so much stronger hmm i just I'd say as well what it's hard to kind of describe mm. what what particularly about it doesn't work. But one second, I had a I had a point, mate. Feel free to feel free to cut. Sorry, I had, that's like, right. I, like throughout that conversation, I was leading up to something. But um, I had that earlier. Don't worry, it's all right. Yeah, but give me a second. lost it if i get it back again um <laughs> fuck's sake uh yeah no okay i've got it i've got it i've got it 
I think as well, like a way they could have played it that would have worked a lot better in, in relation to the relationship between Doc and Marty would be perhaps mm. that he does meet this Clara and he doesn't like, he isn't smitten with her at first, but as like the relationship starts to build more and more, uh, a mm. doubt could start to brew in him a lot more of like whether or not he even wants to go back, you know, to present day. Like he wants to, he wants to stay here with, with, with Clara and that kind of could create yeah, a, bit of a, yeah. a bit of friction between Doc and Marty. It's just, uh, it's just such an obvious road they could have gone down, which they didn't in the end. And it instead is strange, we get, yeah. yeah. Instead we get like something that I just I don't like in in basically any piece of media. It's the the misunderstanding between two parts of a couple, which creates like kind of what always just feels like manufactured conflict. You know, like it never mm. feels natural. Like it's the bit where he's at the door saying, "Oh, I've got to go tomorrow," and she's like, "Oh, just be honest with me why." He's like, "Okay, I'm from the future. You know, I came here in a time machine that I invented." And like we're mm. going back to 1985, and she just, fair enough, like assumes he's crazy, you know. Mm. But then it's like she shuts the door on him, and that leads him to go to the the pub and get and get well bar. It's 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 America and get drunk, uh, it, like which, it's just it leads to a I, a chain yeah. of events. I'm not a massive fan of you know that kind of overused just, cliche of the misunderstanding. I just don't mm. understand why. I, I just don't understand why. I think is is what I'm saying. I, I don't. And I think that's one thing that did confuse me a little bit, is that, yes, she does cause that, but at the same time, it's like, okay, Doc, you knew you weren't going to go back with her. It doesn't mm. matter what she thinks of you, because you're never going to see her again. Yeah, of course. So why are you going and getting pissed when that's going to affect you actually getting back? You know, that's, mm. that's like a huge thing. This is, this is like your one chance. You might even get shot in the morning. Why would you get pissed? Why would you just, like, have a big drink and then collapse? Yeah, I'd say another negative um, that I have moving before we move on to stuff that I actually like because we we do we mm. do both like this film. I feel like we've kind of like mm. let out our mm. our kind of like uh, <clears throat> nitpicks and sort of like criticisms of it so far. But yeah. before we get into what we actually like, I feel like an issue that I have is that the fan service uh, gets a bit too on the nose by the third one, uh, especially with the stuff with Leah Thompson and Michael J. Fox's like Irish Western counterparts who frankly are just completely superfluous and are only there for the sake of getting Michael J. Fox in another role and mm. like doing the whole Marty, like we said when we were talking about part two, Marty wakes up in a version of his mum's bedroom again, you know yeah. which as a joke in itself I feel like is funny, I said that earlier yeah. but after that moment, the two of them being there is a bit pointless because they don't like they contribute yeah. anything to the film, like neither of them do they, they, yeah they really don't like, it's a weird it's a weird one i i wasn't it is a little bit confusing i think it would have been interesting to see like i don't know it's it is a weird one isn't it though as well mm. because you consider that that's the mcfly origin isn't it mm, yeah they, yeah that's they're got, the first that's, they're the first mcflies to move to america yeah that's got leah thompson mm. who's playing a character who's not born a mcfly, McFly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just a fan service. So thing, why? Isn't it? Yeah, but why? Yeah, it, it just it begs the question: is like why wasn't George in that role? Or yeah, why didn't they just? Do, why obviously, didn't they just yeah. obviously, by this point, Chris McGlover had like distanced himself from the franchise. Um, yeah. So but then why make it? Why make him? Why make him fly? I don't know. I just it was a bit of a weird choice, especially having uh, Michael J. Fox play this other character, which he hadn't been seen to do in the franchise before. You know, and mm. I, I I don't know. I. It's an, it was an odd choice to even have that family there because, as you say, they didn't really contribute much. Um, hmm. I don't know; it's a weird one. But yeah, anyway, um, what, the film is good stuff. Though. Yeah, the film is good. <laughs> we want to talk about stuff we actually like. 
Yeah, because I actually really do like this film. I love the style of it. I love the fact that they went to Western times. I love the the idea behind it. Again, I love the the fact that this is this is what like Doc. What this is he's happy with this. That like, this is a little, like, retirement plan. Um, mm. I like how he's like a professor in the old West. Like, he's got a yeah. big extravagant machine to give him like an, a block of ice. That's brilliant. That's <laughs> Marty's so just funny. Like, it's a refrigerator, you know. Like it's yeah, yeah. It's 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 incredible and. I love so many things about this film. I, lo- I-, I love the idea of being trapped there because it's not like the 50s. It's not like all this thing. At least with Back to the Future 1, you actually knew the lightning was going to strike there. You knew exactly what you had to do. The plan was mm-hmm. in shape. With this, yeah. it's like, we don't know if this is going to work. We might end up launching ourselves off a cliff here. We yeah, don't yeah, know. We're just tracks. trying anything. And um, I think that's brilliant. And for all its criticisms, I don't hate the romance plot. I wish it was obviously ironed out in the sort of things I was saying before. There's so many different directions which would have been a lot more realistic and a lot more entertaining to take it in than just love at first sight, because it's not lame, it's, it's you know, yeah. we, we, we don't have to do that. Um, but I think that the setting of this, I think Mad Dog Tannen is brilliant. I love yes. the fact that the, the sheriff is played by like the high school teacher. Yes, such Strickland. a tiny, such a tiny thing, but it just works so well, and it's so entertaining to see that. It um, just carry over perfectly, you know. It's like you could tell yeah, that like Bob Gale yeah. and like Robert Zemeckis were just like in a room and like, wait, what if we made like Biff? like a kind of like outlaw who's like constantly robbing banks and everything and what if we yeah. the principal like the marshal of the town and everything is all about yeah. kind of like order and discipline perfect yeah, perfect translation it's such a clever idea clever idea and it, and it just it, it encapsulates that sort of um, campy sort of comedic vibe that the series goes for while still yeah. keeping that sort of serious level um, I guess you know just on a bit of a reflection point I guess I think that's why maybe this doesn't work especially with the whole romance thing because that isn't funny Mm. there's no yeah. comedic element yeah, to that yeah. it's just yeah, very it's played very seriously as in like yeah because like I said at, at the end of the day Back to the Future is meant to be a comedy you know mm. like Maybe even, that's why the, even the then, stuff yeah. yeah even the stuff in the first one that like people find quite awkward but like uh, Bob Gale's got out of his way to stuff to say like the stuff with Marty and his mum was meant to be played for laughs you know like it's, mm. it's quite awkward like but, but there's not that much of it in the third one you know, there's not mm. much. There's not much, many comedic beats. I, I don't think. Um, in terms of performance-wise, like I said, um, Bad, Mad Dog's great. You know, he's he's yeah. very. I think he's very funny. He gets a lot of times times to shine. Same with Christopher Lloyd once again as uh, as Doc Brown. Both versions uh, that appear, but yeah, it's less of a comedy, and that's definitely what works less about it. What I was gonna say though is that it's a film that. I'm, it might not be to my taste, but I can appreciate it. And I think mm. that's that's just the same with everything. I'm not a fan of westerns, like uh, like film like genre wise in film, but I can appreciate the effort that was put into like paying homage to like Clint Eastwood films and stuff like that, and very much yeah. trying to emulate that tone and that and that, and that style. Uh, it's just not to my own taste, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah. I, I, I love the aesthetic of it and I do like this this can be sort of Wild West setting. Um, I'm I'm kind of a fan of that, so I quite like that element. One thing, just I know we've already talked about stuff we don't like, but I feel like that's just the sort of direction we're going with this film. I yeah. really don't like, I don't like that he calls himself Clint Eastwood. It just annoys <laughs> me. I don't know why it annoys me, but it's just like, it's not funny. It's, it's too, is it too on the nose? It's a little bit too on the nose. Calvin Klein, right? That was funny. That's clever. Yeah. Yeah, it's just her, her making a mistake and him going with it. This is him going like, 
oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Clint Eastwood. No, yeah. come on. No. Like, I, I don't know. There's just, they could have done something different. I know, I know that was like the point. It's just a joke that doesn't work with me personally. Um, mm. But yeah. Just trying to keep on the same, like, sort of positive, uh, yeah. like, <laughs> wavelength. Um, like I said, I think uh, it's the case with all the films, but especially here, the kind of, like, effort that was put into emulating the Wild West setting, or rather oh, tran- yeah. translating the space that we already know in the first two films to a Wild mm. West setting, I think is done perfectly. Um, in both, obviously, the production design, the sets, and the characters, uh, which yeah. we've spoken about. But also, if I was going to uh, say my favourite part of the entire, entire film, it would be, well, it's two parts. I think the ending with the train and the car going almost going off the thing is genuinely suspensive and it's well paced I, I actually think that's probably and this you know this is a bit maybe a bit of a hot take but I think that's probably the best climax to any of these films I feel really? like it's got a very lacklustre kind of film behind it with a lot of elements that really don't work which does mm. kind of dampen it but I think in terms of the climax I'm always on the edge of my seat I yeah. know what's coming but I, I'm just sort of like oh my god like oh, it's just so good because the music is incredible. They they We've really not like, spoken about they, Alan Silvestri's music, but it is throughout all three films. It is super. oh, it's incredible. It's incredible, yeah. and it really steps up here. Um, not just with the ending, but um, Double Back, I think it's called. Yeah, great, and also great the track. kind of like great the, the the Wild West. Uh, new ver- the new Wild West versions of the pre-established motifs and themes in the other films, mm. like the kind of like the tunes that you know when you like go into a Back to the Future film are there, but they're played on more kind of like uh, instruments mm. of the era, which I think is just a nice touch. Yeah, you know? and I and I love and I'm a big fan of um, <clears throat> the Westworld soundtrack, which does a very similar thing. Not not like too much, but they they do this sort of thing where um, they they have like modern day songs and they do them on like honky tonk western like piano and like orchestras oh, yeah. and stuff um so they've got like paint it black for example which is a, a great song but they do it in a sort of orchestral piece which plays over a bank robbery scene in westworld it's that sort of thing when when musicians in films and tv can really pull it in and go oh, we're going to just make it the instrument of this era and really make mm. it fit within that there's so many like western stereotypes but i don't think Actually, this film falls for too many of those. I feel like this film actually does a really good job of just simulating what that era probably would have been like. Yeah, it's Um, a good it's a good homage to to like the kind of like uh, Clint Eastwood mm, like you know films mm. uh, if that makes sense. Uh, But yeah, we were talking about the the climax of part three and why it works so effectively. Uh, Music was one of them. Um, It just it all comes together to make I, I'd say like a, a very kind of like shining bright spot of the film just because of the pace of it and because of the tension it's building up throughout with the train going mm. faster and faster and faster and like the real when Doc and Marty realise that Clara's on the train and if they leave like she's gonna go over the, the cliff it's like all this stuff is building and building and building to make for a very yeah. effective climax um, do you have any other things you want to say about this sequence? I, I think it's just, again, as I said, I, I think it's probably, like, my favourite climax to one of these films. I love the climax in the other films, but there's something about this in terms of the suspense, in terms of the energy, in terms of the music, in terms of how satisfying it is. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously you hate that bit where Doc sort of, I, I don't really like the bit where Doc rides off because I'm sort of like, oh, no, like, you, you should be there, you should be in the bloody car. But yeah. I, I just, there's something so suspenseful about it, and that, to invoke those emotions, is good filmmaking. And that finale to be the, the end of the trilogy that's the best possible way they could have ended it in my opinion mm. I think it's brilliant 
speaking of the end of the trilogy, the the only other scene I want to draw attention to is um, the final uh, interaction between Doc and Marty with the time traveling train in 1985, where he gives him the the framed picture and talks about how like yeah. the, your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. I think that's just a genuinely well written, lovely and heartfelt send off to the entire franchise, and why mm. you definitely should never make a fourth one ever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because the sentiment of the end of the third one is the the future going forward. The future is whatever you make it. You can literally anything could happen from this point. It's all up to you. So why would you ruin that by like trying to show you what actually happens? Exactly. Like it, it's kind yeah. of lovely that it's all let like kept like up in the air. What happens mm. for for Mar- all we know is that their futures are changed. And it's hopefully for the better, you know? The experiences that he's gained is going to lead... In the same way, once again, it harkens back to the first film. <laughs> in, the, in the same way to his parents, right? His experiences with all this time travel stuff is going to lead him into a better future. I, li- I love that, you know? Because it's the yeah. same as his dad. It's not, it's not something yeah. he really talks about in the third one. But that's just a lovely little... Uh, detail is brought in at the very end, which just, which it just, it bookends it perfectly. It brings it full circle, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I just, I just think it's, a, it's a lovely ending. It's the best way they could have ended that. I feel like, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it, it, the, there's a sort of slight story point which is sort of undercut. I think it's sort of forgotten about, at least by me when I rewatch these films, is the, um, I can't remember the guy's name now, but the sort of needles, the road, needles, yeah, the road race segment because it's obviously yeah. touched and touched on on the second one. Where it's mm. like, oh, that's that's where Marty's life went wrong. Mm, he gets um, in a car accident and he can't play guitar anymore. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to see that done almost again in the third one, right at the end, where it's like, okay, like here he is, this is the moment, and he doesn't. And that's again like encapsulates that point that you were talking about there of the future is yours to make up whatever you want. Like we've yeah. seen the future that would have happened, but we have absolutely no idea what Marty's future is like because we, as the audience, he hasn't seen it, we haven't seen it, we don't know what it is. It's yeah. totally open because he's changed what would have happened, and I quite like that open-ended um, feeling to it. Also, you've got that fantastic shot of the um, <laughs> the kid pointing at his dick on the uh, train. <laughs> How? Uh, come on! Uh, what, as a Back to the Future, as a Back to the Future fan, and you've never heard of this. This is incredible. I've, ne- I've never heard of this. In the final shot of uh, of that sort of sequence, the right, okay. the youngest the youngest kid in the background, one of Doc Brown's kids. Um, clearly needs the toilet during the take and he's like pointing and he looks like he's going to cry and he's just pointing at his trousers he's like I need to go to the toilet <laughs> right, I'm literally I'm, I'm, and they I'm left googling this as we, right you I, I was able to blow your mind uh, for Back to Future Part 2 you're about to blow my mind now um, yeah I just googled it he does Sorry. he does and like, they, they left it in that. they just thought that is- we'll, we'll keep that take why that is a testament, though, to Christopher Lloyd's performance in that like speech that he gives to yeah. Marty, and that I never noticed. Like, I'm always just sort of captivated with him. I guess you know. I'm going to bring <laughs> it back around to a positive. Christopher Lloyd's great as Doc. Christopher Lloyd is great. That's, but yeah. I think it's such a like. I, I can't believe you didn't know that. That's brilliant. What a, weir- what a, a weird bit of trivia that is. That is fantastic bit of trivia. I love it. It's one of my. When I watch this film, I can't. That's the problem, I suppose. Is I I, I do get a bit zoned out of the that that final performance because I just. I'm just enjoying the performance of that kid who really needs the toilet, and wow. it's so funny. I just can't believe they kept that in. I can't believe they just went. That's perfect. Let's let's just keep that. Yeah, go go for another take, maybe. Just do you know, another take. Like... Yeah, just get. Oh, Christ, but yeah, no. Um, it's funny. It's a nice little um thing, and I I think, yeah, I think that's really all. I I really want to say about this film. I think it's 
it's flawed in a lot of places, and I can see why people don't like it, but I do have a, such a big soft spot for it, not only because yeah. it's part of this brilliant trilogy, but also because it is a pretty good film in itself. It has a lot of good themes, a lot of good ideas. Um, it just wasn't perfectly executed but i think the only reason this feels like a dud is because the first two were so well executed mm. and i think that's just mm. a testament to how good this franchise is in total um i think we'll wrap this up now um by ranking um the three each and i know we're going to have different lists here but mm. um obviously yeah we'll just we'll, we'll just do that there's only three of them so um in third place well, we'll just, we'll just say our third. What's, what's, what's your third place? Back to the Future Part 3. I think yeah, that's going to be the I same think, for both of us. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. I, I, it's good, but it's not as good as the first two. No, I think this no. is where it it's, changes. It's the one that we, even yeah. though we both like it, it's the one that like we've been very open about. It has problems and we've kind of like, almost harped on our criticisms of it. Yeah. Result, yeah, of course it's going to be the bottom one. You know? mm. um, and obviously, second place. Back to the Future Part 2. Back to the Future 1, and then, yeah. So my yeah, favourite then... is Back to the Future 2, yours is Back to the Future 1. Totally fair, though. I think the two, it depends again on what you... I'd, I'd still say Back to the Future 1 was definitely the better film, but mm. I do find a lot more enjoyment. <laughs> Thank you for conceding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that's really all um, that really wants to be said about it. We've talked quite a lot about these films. Um, is there anything, Joel, that you would like to sort of promote... Um, Twitter, Letterbox, anything like that. Um, your your short film, obviously, as well. Yes. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter uh, at PaulieH2. Please ignore like the fact that it's called that. Um, but yeah, that that is my at on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow me, I mostly post about Doctor Who stuff, but I'm trying to branch out into more kind of like uh, film topics recently. That would that would be really cool if I felt like I could uh, talk more about stuff like that. So if you want to follow me for for film opinions or or Doctor Who, go, go ahead. I, I, I tweet there quite regularly um, and. In terms of anything else I'd like to promote, I made a short film recently, a uh, seven to eight minute short film. I think it's like seven and a half minutes actually. Short film that I made at my university that I uh, wrote and uh, directed. Uh, it's something that was very much a long time coming. I first came up with the idea of it back, I'd say like in my first or second year of college. So like three or four years ago now, it, it, I've, it's spent like the past few years uh, just trying to get made. It's had a very troubled production history, but thankfully, it's done and it's made and I'm incredibly happy with it and what I was able to to put together for my for my first time getting to do this semi-professionally so if you haven't seen it it's on my YouTube channel I'm sure it'll be included uh, in the description um, yeah. or where, where yeah uh, in the promotion for this episode but yeah go check it out I'd really appreciate it I hope you enjoy it yeah thank brilliant you brilliant stuff <laughs> brilliant stuff and of course if you want to keep up to date with um, all the stuff for this podcast we are at Spill Your Beans on Twitter and uh, my letterbox is uh, George Sheard it's linked in the uh, description of this episode like they always are um, but yes feel free to check those out and we'll see you next week with another film review I think I can't remember exactly what episode it is but you'll be as surprised <laughs> as I am I'm sure um, yeah. there we go thank you for listening and uh, see you later thank you bye <laughs>